All right, people, how you doing? Hoping everybody is well. Make sure we broadcast in here. Okay. Looks like both are go. Some people come in. Thanks, Clutch. What's good? Ad Media, what's up? AB, Soul Shader, how you doing? Let some people come in. How you doing, Kendra? Salute to you too. I may forget about this by the time Artisan comes in, but um, y'all can let him know. I actually bought, you know, two different uh, sword shelves and both of them arrived broken. So I'm not going to be able to have my stuff set up until I get one that isn't. All right. People starting to pour in. What's up, Malika? Ron, how you doing? Art of Forte, what's going on? Unreasonable, what's up? DJ? Mr. Meach, hope everybody is well. D. Scott, Antonio, what's happening? Jerome, what's going on? Young Jay, Aquateki, what's good? Bishop, show your light, NJ Prophet. Uh, what's up, BGS? All right. Hoping everybody is good in here. Hoping everybody is feeling healthy. Appreciate that support, Malika. Um, hoping everybody is feeling uh, or is able to shelter safely. You know. Quentin, what's going on? HPM, Darker Visions, what's going on? 72 Pass, Dallas, Joe, what's going on? Okay. Y'all know, um, support the show if you can. For those who don't know, this is the Onyx Report, a program that critically analyzes the experiences, histories, and perceptions of Black males in American society across age, class, region, sex, and profession. I'm your host, Dr. Tia San Johnson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State, Black Male Studies Scholar, and overall Black Male Advocate. In this program, we examine current events and major issues using an empirically driven Black masculinist theoretical lens, thus including such concepts as the Black male dual economy, anti-Black misandry, phallicism, the subordinate male target hypothesis, and the Black gynarchy. Our goal is to remind people, including Black men themselves, of Black men's humanity. So join us every Wednesday at 5, either on YouTube or Interlight Radio. So appreciate y'all supporting it in. Appreciate the support, Bishop Red Pill. Um, so I wanted to start, you know, y'all know how I do. I like to look at a, a number of current events. And if you've been following me on social media, some of these will look familiar to you. 
Um, Lavo, how you doing? All right. Uh, so let me get this up first and foremost. All right. I want to shout out one um, Dr. Perry A. Hall, who, to my understanding, passed away a couple days ago, if I'm not mistaken, due to a stroke. Um, as of this particular web page, he was a, a professor at Africana Studies, trained in psychology, education and social policy at Harvard. Um, and uh, shout out to him. He's at UNC or was at UNC. Um, but, you know, I like to acknowledge the brother. I've met him once. Appreciate the support, Kendra. Um, and, uh, it was quite a while ago, but I was saddened to hear about this. So we got, you know, we got soldiers going down people. I don't think it was COVID related, but I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but nevertheless, one way or the other peace to him. Um, so I just wanted to give a quick little shout out. And from here, just a few you know, mentions of some some uh, random pieces of information I thought might be of use. Uh, this is notification that came out about uh, Niles Fitch, Atlanta native, who will be starring in uh, Disney's first as Disney's first live action Black Prince. Um, uh, so this will be interesting on Disney Plus. And I only bring this up simply to point out, you know, my son is 14. It's 2020. Um, and I remember when uh, uh, the Princess and the Frog came out, how much celebration there was about the first Black princess. And it was funny to me how nobody cared at all whether or not there was any kind of acknowledgement of Black boys. And that used to frustrate me. And it's not like I'm really looking for Disney, you know, to, to make me or my son feel any kind of way. But I just was more taken aback at how oblivious even those in the Black community were about boys and to the extent uh, that they weren't acknowledged. What's up, D-Remedy? Thanks for the support. So that was just something that I thought was interesting. I have no idea what the quality is, of this is going to be. I haven't, I don't watch This Is Us. I can't say anything about the brother one way or the other. Um, you know, there's some brothers speculating about, you know, what's going to be going on in, in, in the performance, so on and so forth. I can't really speak to any of that. But uh, for those of us who are amazed that it can be 2020 before anyone acknowledges Black boys in a particular way, I just thought it important to point out. Another piece of pop media trivia is this article we see on Atlanta Black Star uh, uh, referring to Omari Hardwick, uh, DS1. Appreciate that support on the cash app. Um, uh, so Omari Hardwick says, I was a strong black father and says that as he played Ghost um, and said he was actually a better parent than Tasha and shouldn't have been killed off in season six. I'm hoping that's a, a bit of a, a ruse because they actually never showed him you know, anything going on. I don't know why. So anyway, uh, this was an interesting article. And I think for me, it raised the issues of um, black males and fatherhood, but especially around ideas around compassion. Right. I'm Lavo. Appreciate the support. Right. Around compassion uh, in regard to fatherhood. He wasn't. And he actually says this about his character. You know, his, his character had bad size sides to him. He wasn't the most compassionate but that goes back to a definition of masculinity, right? That you know predates you know feminism's redefinition of both uh, both genders, where the idea of emotional presence became part of the definition of fatherhood. Prior to that, you know, fatherhood was often defined based on 
you know, uh, on being able to provide, right, in one capacity or another. Uh, Ghost, in some ways, is kind of reminiscent of that, but he does go a step further than that in, in really attempting to strategize, you know, his children's well-being to some extent. And it's not, you know, we can say this is a drug dealer, so on and so forth, and you'd be accurate in that. But at the same time, um, he actually maintained a very consistent desire throughout the entire series to see his children do well. And so it's interesting to note that you do have on one end this drug dealing character who's always in and out of the life. But on another end, he's actually strategizing for his kids to have what he never had. And his biggest um, you know, frustration is dealing with uh, really a son who doesn't uh, doesn't see the value in what he's giving. Uh, and if you haven't seen the end, we actually had a discussion here on my channel uh, with BGS, uh, with Valdez um, and, and um, Artisan, I believe. And we all kind of talked about, um, you know, the whole issue of, of, of Ghost and what kind of went on. So check that out if you haven't seen it already. But it's nonetheless an interesting kind of analysis. And it's a good reflection on fatherhood and what fatherhood means and why and what we value and what we don't. So the mother in the series actually motivates her son to sell drugs. But, you know, you know, the father is considered a bad father, even though everything he strategizes is for his son to do well, even after he dies. Supposedly, you know, his son is still forced uh, by will, you know, by his by the will he left uh, to actually attend college and get his degree. So even in death, he still has to push his son and, and he's doing so for an ungrateful son so that his son could live a better life an easier life than he did. I appreciate that unreasonable man. Appreciate the support. So interesting kind of uh, observation there. If you get a chance to check that out on Atlanta black star, um, right. Another article from Atlanta black star, Florida man released from prison after serving 16 years based on conviction achieved uh, with no DNA evidence, shoddy witness testimony. It's an image of him here. Man's name is Leonard cure. Finally free. Um, after a Florida prosecutor recommended his release because the circumstances surrounding his conviction are suspicious. And we know this happens to, um, you know, black men across the board. Black men are the leading group exonerated by DNA evidence. Um, and we find more and more about this out, uh, you know, every every week, really. Um, and yet and still appreciate the support, Keith Ford. Um, I should say, Keith, I'm going to stop saying y'all's government. I apologize. Anyway, um, if you haven't checked it out, give a look. And I wasn't going to go in depth, but I just wanted to kind of alert you all to some things. I thought this, I thought this deserved mention. It says it took two trials to convict Cure of robbing, uh, uh, I guess it's uh, Denia Beach Walgreens in 2003. Uh, the first jury couldn't come to a consensus, but the second jury found him guilty of robbery with a firearm and aggravated assault with a firearm. Uh, since Cure was con a convicted felon, he was sentenced to life in prison for the first count in a decade for the second to be served concurrently. Um, so it's interesting to note how our guilt or our perceived guilt can add to real consequences, regardless of whether or not we're actually guilty. Um, let me get the last one of the last pieces of uh, unserious news out the way. For those of you who remember Mary Kay Letourneau. She is um, known to have uh, had sex with a number of her students. I believe this was junior high when it occurred. She did some jail time, then came out and married uh, the young man she was having sex with. And now they are splitting and she is looking for 
age appropriate partners, uh, apparently on dating sites. She's now single and is hoping to find love again. I pose this one. I post this article mainly to ask the question, right? Um, what black male rapist can you see showing up on dating sites? And <laughs> I'm just this. It amazes me what people are are, are able to get away with. It, it really does. So um, if this is a, at all of interest to you, you can check it out. There's actually images here of her with the kids. So this is the this is the young man she violated uh, when he was a boy. They got back to they got together when she got out and had a couple of kids. Um, there we go. Had a couple of kids. So this is an interesting thing. And I, I don't um, MLR appreciate the support. I don't know. I can't picture how many black males, you know, convicted of sex crime like this could come out and have articles like this written. What's up, Damon? You know, it, it's just it, it's amazing to me how this can happen and be received right without any severe, you know, protest or whatever. It just I, I, I can't make this shit up. I really can't. Um, anyway, uh, back to the serious news. Um, this is, uh, this is a piece I think you should check out if you haven't heard, um, already came out two days ago. This is Fox to Detroit, obviously, but you can catch it. I'm sure, I'm sure on a, another, a number of other sites. Um, yeah, MLR, she's not considered a sexual predator. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, uh, Kendra said, I was just talking about social conditioning, not seeing females as sexual predators. Indeed. Indeed. Sister Warrior says, I'm not amazed. It's par for the course. I agree. I agree. But uh, this piece here, as you can tell from the title, 40 black men come forward to say U of M doctor sexually abused them. Now, these young men were primarily on scholarship at the University of Michigan. And, um, you know, that actually played a role and how they were able or when they were able to come forward. Um, and I said this when I posted the article online, uh, especially, and I've seen this directly, especially for black males who are uh, on scholarship. You know, uh, many of them, athletes or, or, or academics, um, they carry the weight of uplifting their families, right? We still have a good portion of students that are first generation college they're coming to college, being the first of their families to do so. And many of them are trying to find a way to uplift their families out of poverty. Uh, that is the black experience. And when it comes to black males, the social pressure to be provider, to uplift families is huge. Right. Even into boyhood. You know, I've seen families sacrificing their boys health by getting them into sports, hoping to have the next lottery pick to go to the NFL, or the NBA, so on and so forth, or even to become doctors and lawyers. I've met countless young men. I've been teaching now. Oh, uh, I've been teaching college at the college level for about 22 years now. Um, and before that, I actually taught high school and junior high. But I've seen countless young men whose you know, sole purpose in coming to college was not to just get a good job somewhere. It was actually to find a way to make enough money to lift their families out of poverty. And, and that often meant that many of them went into fields they didn't even like, right? That was one of the sacrifices that males, you know, often make. They go, they go into fields regardless of their interest based on, you know, what will yield results. And many of them, for the most part, go into business. I uh, appreciate that support, Goshen. Thank you uh, for the $100 donation. Um, 
So, you know, in that, when you come into a, a university setting, especially on scholarship and you're there really trying to uplift your family, uh, there's there's not a lot of frame of reference for this kind of thing. Um, and, we, you know, many of these males were were uh, quite uh, stressed to the limits in terms of, of ex- what they experienced and what that meant. And you also have to remember uh, there hasn't been a large movement in the last 50 to 60 years really framing black male vulnerability. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about that tonight. Uh, so a lot of these experiences seem like, you know, they're easy to understand common sense kind of situations. But when you have the weight of your family on your shoulders, it's not quite that cut and dry. Um, and unfortunately, that's a lot of what we, we're seeing happening. And this is not the first time we've seen these kind of incidents take place. So if you get a chance to look into this, please do so, uh, because it is an important piece. Right. Um couple of these are more uh, coronavirus related. The last two I'm going to point out here and then I'll, I'll pull up a couple more. Family ravaged by coronavirus begging, begged for tests, hospital care, but was repeatedly denied. Um, uh, the man who raised Keith Gambrell, who loved him like a son and married his mother, died in a blue recliner of novel coronavirus in his Michigan home. Gary Fowler, 56, went to the emergency rooms of three Metro Detroit hospitals in the weeks leading up to his death, begging for a coronavirus test, begging for help because he was having difficulty breathing, but was repeatedly turned away. Uh, It said that his dad, you know, my dad passed at home. No one tried to help him. His son of 33 said he asked for help. They sent him away. They turned him away. In the hours before his death, breathing was so difficult. Fowler slept sitting up in a bedroom chair while his wife, Cheryl, dozed in the bed by his side. When she woke, her husband of 24 years was gone. Um, This is a powerful piece if you get a chance to look at it, because in many ways it does frame what black men are experiencing in regard to this virus. Uh, I think that's the son right there uh, who lost his father. And uh, it said by the time his son got across town to their house on the morning of April 7th, Police and emergency medical workers had arrived. His dad was still in his recliner. A bluish tinge, a bluish tinge had settled on his lips and fingers. Right. Uh, About 33 percent of the cases of COVID-19 in the entire state of Michigan are in African-Americans and about 40 percent of the deaths. So definitely something to be mindful of. We've been talking about in the last few shows the ways in which this virus impacts black males adversely and the black community in general. Uh, yes, we, don't, we do know that obesity and pre-existing conditions is a serious factor, uh, but we also know that poverty, environmental racism, and a variety of other factors play into this as well. So the places we tend to live at, the food we tend to have available to us, the resources we have available to us, and that includes when we initially had to start quarantining. When I initially saw people heading to the grocery stores uh, and raiding the shelves, it was people that had means people that could afford to do it. And many of us couldn't, right? Many people couldn't just go up and and drop $600, you know, out the gate. Many had to wait for their checks. And then you had the whole quarantine shelter in place kick in. And so you had a, you know, really just a cross section of of very difficult situations for a lot of people. Um, And that ended up being a severe problem. And then on top of that, you had many people who, Went, once they went on quarantine, found out that their jobs were no longer available. 
some were, were not fired, which made it difficult for them to get, uh, you know, unemployment. Some were fired outright. Their positions were done away with. And throughout the course of this quarantine uh, are, you know, trying to find ways to stay afloat. So uh, there are a variety of issues with this. Um, but we like to, at the Onyx Report, look at these from a black male perspective um, and kind of go from there. Um, let me see here. All right. Another story. This is another one from Detroit. Man says dad was turned away by three. This, I think this is the same one. Yeah, I think it's the same one. I must have pulled it up twice. Um, yeah, my bad. All right, hold on. I got a few more for you. So we're going to be looking at a couple of things here. Okay, uh, let me open this up. There we go. Money Mike, appreciate that support. Right, the black tax, Sister Warrior, indeed. Golden Leopard, what's going on? Um, okay. So this one here, um, interesting article up on NPR.org um, that actually says that uh, 73% of inmates at an Ohio prison tested positive, uh, with Ohio reporting some 12,919 coronavirus cases as of Monday. The prison system now accounts for more than 20% of the state's cases. No other state has reported as many cases behind bars as Ohio, in large part because no other state has tested as many inmates. And I've been saying this for the last month that, you know, the prison population and the homeless are basically ticking time bombs in regard to this virus. And I do hope I'm wrong, but I've also been saying that by the time we actually start seeing reports that relate to either population, it's more than likely 10 times worse than it is, mainly because these are very underreported upon populations. Uh, so even getting indications like this, you know, are very telling in terms of uh, the impact um, they may have overall. So all we can do at this point is uh, hope that that's not the case, but uh, keep your eyes open, people, because this is um, this is definitely potentially uh, a time bomb in and of itself. Oh, I'm sorry. I could have opened that up much sooner. All right. Um, so something to keep your eye on. Wanted to shout out Guru. Um, of the group Gangstar. I'm a lifelong fan of his work. Passed away 10 years ago as of April 19th. So for those of you who don't know or may not have remembered, um, check out uh, some of his music sometime in the next uh, 24 hours and, you know, just kind of bless the brother. Um, I've been listening to him since 89 and I appreciated his work. He was giving young men like myself things to think about in relation to living life, women, you know, dealing with, you know, difficulty, all kinds of different stuff. Gangstar covered quite a bit. And that's not to, that's not even to address the quality of the music itself. Roger Jackson, appreciate that support. So check it out. Just a shout out to a uh, guru real quick. And I believe there was a, an album released not long ago. Some of you are probably a little more up to date on that than I am. I did hear elements of it and I know his son was featured and some parts of it, but, uh, you know, check it out if you get a chance. 
So again, shout out to Guru uh, from a lifelong fan. All right, some of you may have seen this, uh, nypost.com, New York City jail population dips to the lowest since 1946 after coronavirus releases, right? So we see Thursday, the mayor also announced over 250 million in cuts to the city's Department of Correction in the next few years. Cuts include over 6 million to train new DOC officers and to provide support services because of the reduced jail population. The city expects to save 244 million over the next few years from closing Rikers, slashing overtime for correction officers and reducing postings. Um, So again, something to keep your eye on as we watch how this virus impacts different segments of the population and sometimes in unexpected ways, but uh, nonetheless, something to keep an eye on. Now, I'm probably going to do a review of this at some point, but this is a series uh, that's on HBO. And I'm sure those of you without HBO have other means of getting a hold of this. So if you can, this is something to check out. To my knowledge, it's a five-part series on the missing and murdered Black children in Atlanta uh, from the early 1980s. And I've only had a chance to watch the first episode, which is why I'm not going to go into depth here. But I just wanted to alert people to it. If you haven't seen it, it is something to check out. Um, It's hard to watch it if you have a soul and and not be moved by it, especially when you actually can see the faces, you know, of the, of the, of the, the mostly children that were killed under questionable circumstances. Right. Um, see if we can enlarge this a bit. Right. So these are the, these are the faces of some of the people, right. Who were killed. And, um, it's interesting to note, I've been, you know, I've obviously been hearing about this since I was, you know, nine, 10 years old, but not being an Atlanta resident, not knowing anybody at that time that was in the area, you know, I just heard about it on the news. And just like the series is titled, it always referred to this as children. But when you actually begin to look at the faces, one of the things you find is that more than children, it uh, it's overwhelmingly boys, overwhelmingly boys. And it's something that I didn't know um, in that manner. Uh, my boy, Dr. William Smith, pointed out that when he was younger, he, re- he remembered uh, people talking about the fact that it was boys. But he also added that many of these boys had the tips of their penises cut off. And now, so far, I hadn't come across that uh, in my previous readings about it, or that I'm only, like I said, I'm early on into the documentary series. But then again, I haven't read about this since undergrad. So um, this is almost all new to me again. But it's incredible how many black boys uh, were dying. And the interesting thing I noticed about it is even up to the, like the first eight deaths were all boys. They just, they still kept referring to it as children. And one of the things I noticed about it was just that, you know, even within the black community, we have a very difficult time conceptualizing male vulnerability, right? We have a difficult time making sense of it. We have a difficult time accepting it because I can guarantee you if this is all girls, it would have been labeled as such, right? It would have been listed as all girls. But for some reason, when it comes to boys, when it comes to men, we have a difficult time empathizing on those grounds. Um 
So like I said, it was about eight boys that died before the first girl. And, and there was never no never a characterization of this being, you know, at least in terms of how it was articulated, you know, and in, in, in not only in the series that I'm watching, but in the news that I'm pulling up, um, you know, the emphasis on boys is just really something that's almost secondary. It's almost an afterthought. Um, and it's just one of those things that, that hurts my heart, you know, to see. Um, because again, we don't really know how to come to grips with that, right? Um, yeah, Kendra, they did have a strong suspect. I'm waiting to get to that. I've, I've seen uh, pictures of him, but I'm waiting to get the story on what happened. I might need to delve into a couple of texts on that as well. Um, so we'll have to see, you know, what exactly you know, what's going on with that. And some of you are probably more familiar with this, especially if you grew up in the area at that time, you might remember this on very different grounds. Um, but I think in the black community, especially uh, that just the lack of emphasis on boys in, in and of itself to me speaks to a difficulty with being able to acknowledge uh, black male vulnerability. And so, you know, that's something that I think merits some reflection. All right. So a couple of the pieces of news I thought were important, I thought were worthy of checking out. Um, I wanted to talk about abuse. And I think I really wanted to talk about it because during this quarantine, we're seeing articles about increased numbers of divorces, increased cases of domestic violence, or the popular term now is intimate partner violence, and even intimate partner homicide. And of course, the narrative is primarily taken up solely in the in the interest of you know women as 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 the primary victims. But there's actually data to suggest that there are ways that we can reevaluate this on a different set of terms. Okay, so I'm going to take you just through a little bit of information that might be of use to put some more arrows in your quiver, so you have some more data to bring to bear uh, when involved in discussions about some of this stuff, because I know how it is, you know, especially you get to a family gathering and getting to discussions as some of my subscribers have talked about and not having information, um, it can end up becoming a very challenging thing uh, to try and get your point across about the vulnerability of men and boys. Um, so I like to be able to kind of provide some resources that hopefully will help with that. Uh, this was an article that, uh, uh, went up the other way. I mean, went up uh, a, a few days ago um, and I had a subscriber send it to me and it blew me away to check out, right? It's a woman shoots man in the face on the West side after saying, you're not going to leave me or I'll effing kill you. Um, basically what happened was that this was a woman who was cheating on her man. He came home, he caught her and contrary to what you would think or what we were, were what we're trained to think about black men, he didn't go get a weapon. He didn't go attack them. He actually just left or was or was trying to leave. And at that point, she pulled a gun and shot him in the jaw for leaving. Right. So. This blew me away. Uh, and as I said at the top of the article, you know, I've seen. Uh, quite a few articles lately dealing with the uptick in cases of intimate partner violence during quarantine, but much of it ignores male victims. This is why I show so many examples of it, because uh, many, including men themselves, haven't had 50 years of socialization to identify it 
even when it's happening happening to them. And to make things worse, female aggressors are not sentenced to the same degree as the male aggressors. This woman only got about $15,000 bail, right? So y'all already know how difficult it must have been for her to get out, right? So she's out faster than he's definitely out of the hospital, right? And these are the kind of situations that males find themselves, black males find themselves in, black men in particular, that get very little fanfare. So even when there's an article, it's not like it's gone viral. It's just kind of there. Um, but I post these kind of things regularly because I'm always amazed, even amongst academics, how many refuse to acknowledge female aggression, refuse to acknowledge male vulnerability. And and so when you get to that, the the, the what would you call that? The uh, the kind of cocktail that creates is one where black males just get forgotten about. And I get it. You know, um, you know, even amongst black men themselves, we don't like to talk about male vulnerable vulnerability. Uh, mainly, many of us are you know kind of pressed to just kind of walk it off. I mean, you know, we know we're not going to get much empathy. Uh, there's not really going to be a political lobby on behalf of black males, especially in terms of black male victimization in uh, IPV kind of cases. So we have a tendency to kind of shame ourselves. We shame each other for bringing it up. We shame each other for talking about it. We kind of just and if anything, one of the things you'll see usually in the comment sections when I post this stuff is black men critiquing the black male who was shot or killed right? about what he should have done better. And it's an interesting kind of dynamic, but I get what it comes from. And if you're not familiar with where it comes from, check out uh, Dr. Tommy Curry's book, The Man Not, and you'll understand it. Right. We were we were we've been man knots in this country since the beginning. So by that, not allowed, not perceived, uh, not treated uh, and definitely not having policy on our behalf as men, um, but as these beings that have male characteristics. Right. And so in adapting to that kind of, um, you know, experience, much of what we've had to do is learn how to endure uh, without fanfare, without acknowledgement. And many of us have gotten so good at it, we don't even think about it. And this is why, you know, a number of shows ago, I was actually asking black men, how many of you since the quarantine, how many of you have had anybody call a check on you? Right. How many of you have uh, called a check on you that weren't asking you for anything? Right. Like how many of you actually had people that just wanted to know if you were good? How many of you had checked on your brothers? Because I have black men that reach out to me all the time that are in complete isolation. And it didn't take the quarantine for that to start. They were in complete isolation anyway, unless it came down to people who needed them to do something when they were a, a utility to someone else. That's the only time they had some degree of importance. So we we've we're used to this kind of isolation. We're used to. um not having any value outside of utility. And in many ways, we, you know, I've said this before, we tend to to stay siloed even from one another, you know? Um, and so one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to push for is a new level of brotherhood, if nothing else, because as we've said repeatedly, uh, nobody else is coming for us. Nobody's kicking down our doors to make sure you're good. So at the, at the very least, can we do that for each other? Because, you know, nobody else is. And so when you look at cases like this um, that are indicative of the kinds of abuse that men grapple with, uh, it's important that we find ways to support ourselves. Um, you know, and I hope we do. Appreciate the support, James. 
If you advocate for black male victimization, there will be a vocal minority of black men that would call the victims feminine, not real men. Exactly. Exactly. When it really, it doesn't take much to be victimized. You know, I mean, I remember debating with a brother a couple of years ago online that kept pointing out that black male victimization, especially in intimate partner um, uh, settings, didn't, it wasn't real. Um, it was just weak brothers that were taking too much. And I'm like, well, you know, okay. So how strong do you have to be for her to attack you in your sleep? Or pour some hot grease on you or shoot you, as in the case of this guy. It, 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 there are so many ways that a person can be attacked, can be victimized. It doesn't have anything to do with weakness. It just has to do with the fact that we're dealing with a population of women, especially when I talk about American women, Western women in general. We're talking about a population that has not been socialized to deal with male empathy, has not been uh, has not been trained to perceive male vulnerability. And if any, and, and if anything, in many instances are taught that it really doesn't exist and that there are really no consequences for one's actions, right? So you can be shot, you can be killed, yet she implicitly knows that in many instances, she can, she can tell the police that you were aggressing her without evidence and you can end up in jail. Um, you know, a good friend of mine told me a story the other day. I've known him for, what, 25 years? And he told me a story about his first marriage in the 80s that I had never heard before. And, you know, basically what he, he said took place was his wife attacked him with a broken bottle. And he walked out of the house to avoid it. And the police were called. And when the police drove up, she ran out of the house, jumped on his back and stabbed him or tried to stab him with the broken bottle to the point where he was bleeding. The police pulled her off of him, but then if I, but then began to arrest him because the presumption was that had she done that or since she did that, he must have done something to cause it. Now, he was able to, he managed to stay calm. Uh, he talked to the officers. Eventually, believe it or not, they actually did take her in for a couple of days. But where the story gets even more frustrating is many years later, his ex-wife told his daughter about the situation, but framed him as the aggressor. And so his daughter came to him to ask him about it, looking at him as an abuser. And the only thing that rescued his image in his own daughter's mind is that he was smart enough to keep all of the police records of what took place. He pulled the records out, put them on the table and made his daughter sit there and read them beginning to end before they continued the conversation. That was the first time that she had actually been introduced to the fact that her mother could have been, the, her mother was the aggressor despite what her mother told her verbally with no evidence versus what. So he didn't answer. He didn't tell the story his own way. He gave her the evidence and made her read it before he even began to talk about it. So what, what am I saying? I'm saying even a daughter who's known you her whole life, he was, he raised his kids himself. He managed to get sole custody in the 1980s. How many brothers did that? But despite all of that, one conversation with her mother, and it was 
case closed, he was an abuser until he made her read the police report. Had he not kept that, his relationship with his daughter would have been wholly different, right? Those are the kinds of situations black men find themselves in because for the most part, we're perceived to be, you know, the, the villain, the criminal, the, the, the monster from the get-go. Um, and we can lose face with our own children behind evidence-free stories told by those who have a clear vested interest in uh, being angry with us even after decades, and we often have no recourse. So, you know, um, those are the kind of situations we deal with, unfortunately. And in the case of this coronavirus and this quarantine, I, I fear there will be much more of that. So all I can say is be very uh, uh, protective of your reputations, brothers, because there are definitely some things that um, are, are going to be levied against, against us. Now, I was going to play a video um, that some of you may have seen on my Facebook page of um, a couple that got into a, a, a violent altercation, but it's like 18 minutes long. Um, and I'm obviously not going to play all of that. Um, but one of the things that you notice about it, and if you go to my Facebook page, you can find it. I only posted it a couple days ago. It's been reposted a couple of different times. Um, but it's a case where it's a couple arguing and their neighbors across the street are videotaping the whole thing or record video that I'm showing you my age videotaping. Um, they're recording it and it's 18 minutes long and they're, they're fighting back and forth up and down the street. She actually took a, an, an impact drill and banged up his car. Um, it, it's, it's just ridiculous. She attacked him with an ice pick. He tried to choke her. But what it actually showed, among other things, is that and much of the time she was the aggressor. I mean, there were a number of different situations where he tried to back away. He tried to tell her to stop. He tried to go. He tried to leave and she wouldn't let him. She kept attacking him over and over. She would walk from across the street to attack him again. She squared up on him, got in his face. Um, let me see. I'm, I'll, I'll play a portion of it. But like I said, it's 18 minutes long. So um I'll just get a, a little bit of it in here. Hold on. All right. Let's skip ahead a little bit. Can you guys hear it? Appreciate the support, the support, Chief Rocker. 
So he's walking away at this point. He does this several times. That's her smashing up his car. He choked her. Now this is this is something I want you to now they, I just want to say real quickly because I'm I'm only going to play like a minute more right but you you do you need to watch the whole thing and it stops before we actually see who gets arrested the cops get there but we don't get to see who gets arrested so if anybody has any extra information after the recording stops let me know but what's interesting right here is that there are a number of people that stop to check on her now at various points in this video she was she she like I said she attacked him with a drill with an ice pick He's wrestling with her. But even what you saw a moment ago where he wrestles her to the ground, he steps back and walks away. Right. If that was a man to man confrontation, he more than likely would have started grounding and pounding. He might have started punching straight. You know, somebody who's laying on the ground. He's actually not trying to hit her, but they're still arguing. They're going back and forth and she's attacking him with weapons. But people are stopping to check on her. Right. Oh. <laughs> Okay, so there's a lot more to it. They go across the street, it's a whole mess. Um, but Part of why I'm showing this is because uh, when we look at some of the research data around what we're looking at here, we find out some startling information, information that, you know, isn't necessarily common knowledge, uh, despite that uh, we all think we kind of have a handle on abuse. We have a handle on, on understanding it. Some interesting information that, uh, you know, and this is why uh, I appreciate data, because sometimes it really helps us look at things a little differently. Now, this is from an older piece, accepted in 2006, published in 2011. Uh, Daniel Whitaker, uh, Tadisi Halasius, Hilasi uh, Monica Swan, Linda Saltzman, title is Differences in Frequency of Violence and Reported Injury Between Relationships with Reciprocal and Non-Reciprocal Intimate Partner Violence, right? And what I would call your attention to is at the bottom of the screen, uh, the results section, right? Almost 20%, 24% of all relationships had some violence and half, 49.7% of those were reciprocally violent. In non-reciprocally violent relationships, women were the perpetrators in more than 70% of the cases. Reciprocity was associated with more frequent violence among women. 
Um, regarding injury, men were more likely to inflict injury than were women. And um, reciprocal inti intimate partner violence was associated with greater injury than was non-reciprocal intimate partner violence, regardless of the gender of the perpetrator. Right. So what we're looking at is a, a case where we're starting to find that the narrative, especially you know, propagated by the Duluth model, that abuse is always one way and it's a response to patriarchy, has some serious flaws in the base theory of it. Right. Has some serious flaws. Let's look at. Let me see. OK, I left it in the other folder. Here we go. So we're going to go into the paper on this in a minute, but I want you to at least see the uh, the chart. That uh, my previous guest, uh, Maïs, from my last show um, last week for the Onyx Report and uh, I think uh, it's, it, it, Mike, um, excuse me for, for misremembering your last name, Mike. I didn't want to get it wrong, um, but I shouted both of them out when I posted this on Facebook. You can kind of see the information proposed here. And we're going to go into the paper that this paper, that this information is based on. But I thought it best we start here because it's an interesting way to kind of look at something that we're told operates very differently. So. Uh, the basis of this, you know, is that 84% of all relationships are nonviolent, 84%. So this comes out of a meta study, right? This comes out of a, a paper written that is a study of a large number of studies and brings them together, weights the evidence and reframes it in a manner that allows us to see what, what's going on. So 84% of relationships are nonviolent. Only 16% are violent. Right. And out of that 16 percent, that 58 percent of that 16 percent. So the red portion right in the middle. Right. Triangle is bidirectional. Right. That's what we saw in the video we were just watching. The violence is going both ways. And you're going to find in the black community, the rates are either even or um, the rates are slightly higher for women, depending on which study you're looking at. Right. So. 58% of that 16% of violent relationships is bi-directional, violence going both ways. And some of the popular feminist interpretations is that women only respond with violence in out of self-defense, right? But what we often find, especially if you watch the whole of that 18-minute video or you read more of the data, that's not the case. Women are often aggressors to greater degrees than men. As Dr. Carol Keating, uh, uh, Carrie Keating actually says, she points out that uh, women hit first, uh, men do more damage, mainly because men are stronger. Um, but women are usually you know, women tend to initiate violence and often use weapons to greater degrees. Um, men generally use their own hands, uh, but can do more damage because of the strength differentiation. Right. Nevertheless, uh, despite that, almost 60 percent of violent relationships are bidirectional. Um, the 42 percent left over are unidirectional, meaning that one person is committing the violence toward another. And what we find at the top part of the screen is that women tend to be the initiators of unidirectional violence at twice the rate of men, 28% versus 14, right? 28% versus 14. This is not the kind of information that I was ever given in the 1980s and 90s 
about abuse, about intimate partner violence, or then we call domestic violence. This was none of the information I was given at the time. It was almost treated like a given that men were the initiators of violence in every situation across the board, and women were almost never violent, but if they were, it was out of self-defense. And that was the narrative. Clean, neat, direct. End of discussion. Right? It's one of the things that we we heard. But not something we're, we're, we're actually experiencing. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to pull up the paper that this is based on and um, actually read through a couple of portions of it. Uh-oh. Hold on. There we go. Let me get out of that. Yes. All right. Um, you know what? Let me... Let me try to pick it up a little bit. All right. No, that's not working. Forgive me, y'all. I'm just getting my stuff together here. Oh, there we go. All right. So paper was called entitled Rates of Bidirectional versus Unidirectional Intimate Partner Violence Across Samples, Sexual Orientations, and Race Ethnicities, a, a Comprehensive Review um, by Jennifer Langen Rickson Rowling, Tiffany A. Misra, uh, Candace Selwyn, Martin Rowling, the University of South Alabama. All right. Um, let's see. Let me scroll to a couple of areas real quick. Bear with me. Okay. So um, let's see. Those advocating that at least some intimate partner violence may be best understood from a gender symmetry position, argue that IPV tends to flow in both directions, from males to females and females to males. Violence perpetrated by either partner has damaging effects for all involved, including children who witness violence perpetuated by either parent. Repeated reports of substantial rates of bidirectional violence suge suggest that risk factors for relationship dissatisfaction and common communication deficiencies between partners may need to be addressed as part of a national effort to prevent the occurrence of IPV. Right? So they're changing the paradigm. They're trying to say we got to move away from this model where damage only ones runs from males to females and understand it on a framework that's rooted in an analysis of the data that does not presuppose male aggression, does not presuppose female innocence, but actually looks at what people do as a framework, right? So coming down a little bit, um, let's see. All right, this procedure resulted in retaining seven epi epidemiological and population-based studies with a total of 82,836 sampling units, 44,930 females, 38,906 males. Now I point that out because I think it's important. Sometimes you'll see studies with 50 people, with 30 people. And it's not to say that those studies don't have value, uh, but it is to say that it's important to actually look at you know the larger studies if at all possible. This is a significant amount. We've got 82,000 plus people being studied here uh, to look at what's going on. 
Uh, each obtained rate of weight uh, was weighted by the sample size from which it was derived in order to determine the overall rate of IPB reported in these studies was 16.3%, 22.1% average unweighted by sample size. Among those reporting IPV and using weighted averages across these samples, nearly 58% of the violence reported was bidirectional. Correspondingly, 42.1% of the violence was, was reported as unidirectional with um, within the 42.1%, 13.8 was coded as perpetually only from men to women, while 28.3% of the reported unidirectional violence was from women toward men, right? Among the large population studies, the ratio of unidirectional female to male compared to unidirectional male to female IPV was 2.05 weighted. So, you know, again, affirming the chart we looked at earlier, this is what the data from that chart is based on. This is the paper that that chart, and you have to be careful of charts on YouTube or, or Facebook or Twitter. Sometimes they look great, but, you know, Sometimes people will just throw up a name and walk away and, you know, you're using it until somebody points out that somebody made it up and it wasn't based on anything. Um, let's see what I want to do. I want to take you to the chart, which I think is the most impactful chart in this paper. Right. I'm not going to be on here much longer, but um, this is table eight. Um, let me see if I can enlarge it a little bit. I hope you guys can see it. This is table eight. Rates of bidirectional and unidirectional violence reported among white, black, and Hispanic ethnic groups from the same sample, right? I colored in the black portion so you can see it. So here we have for white, black, and Hispanic, we have bidirectional, we have male to female, um, female to male, right? And what are the things we see? What do we, what can we pull out of this, right? One of the things we see is the rates of male to female, they differ, right? Now you can see it in other communities as well, right? White population, you can see it. And these are all different studies, 2005, 2008, five, eight, five, you know, these 2006, 2004, these are different studies. And they even deal on some of the other charts with military. They deal with uh, couples that are highly violent. You can see the rates actually change um, for couples that are already deemed as violent. Uh, some real interesting information in here. But nonetheless, one of the things you can kind of see is that the rates of violence are, in many instances, significantly different, right? Going against popular narrative about men. And, and male violence, male aggression, so on and so forth, right? So even if you come home, catch your wife or girlfriend having an affair in your bed and walk away, you might still be the victim, right, of intimate partner violence or attempted homicide, really, um, even if you haven't done anything, Right? And there will still be many people that will assume that even though you got shot in the jaw for trying to leave, you must have done. And this is something I've actually heard people say, well, he must have done something. He must have tried to attack her. Unwilling at all to, under, to, to at least grapple with the notion that he didn't do anything. He didn't have to do anything. Right. That's the thing. And, and, and Chief Rocker makes a very interesting point 
here that I want to put up, right? When he says knowing what's at stake, right? If we know that women aggress um, often, be it bi-directional or unidirectionally, um, when it comes to black men, right, the idea that we are already perceived as guilty before the situation even starts is already a problem. But knowing full well when the police get there, the likelihood that black men will find themselves in jail, black men will find themselves being pinned down, beat up, black men will find themselves being tased, right? And just like the story with my friend, even if he hasn't done anything at all, right? And being in a situation like this, exacerbating the issue, raising the stakes of it, you know, and then it, it possibly falsely accusing him, knowing full well how black men are perceived. These are problems. These are problems. These are things that need to be called into question because black men are already vulnerable. So we get back to the idea of black male vulnerability. Part of that vulnerability is our susceptibility to others' assumptions of our guilt, right? Regardless of the data. So we can actually see data that tells us that women aggress more than men. And I can guarantee you right now there is a brother going to jail on the on the false testimony of having committed a crime against a partner simply because he's male and it's more believable. Right. These are the kind of problems we grapple with. And so when I talk about male vulnerability, especially during the quarantine, obviously the number of these cases go up as people are forced to stay indoors with one another. Aggression, frustration, all of those things increase because you're dealing with people who are losing jobs, who may be losing family members, who may be grappling with different degrees of sickness from a variety of different conditions, including COVID-19. All of these things are taking place at the same time. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of frustration and there's a lot of fear. We know when times are economically unstable, particularly amongst the working class and below, people start to, to deal with the stress of wondering where the next meal is coming from, where the next rent payment is coming from. So yeah, tensions rise, tensions increase. But if we go into this with the religious belief that aggression and violence in relationships only happens from men to women, we will literally be putting blinders on to the reality of what people face, what they experience. And just like earlier in the paper, it points out kids become witness to this. Right. And if you're used to seeing your 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 father, your uncle, your grandfather, whomever it is being abused, what impact does that have on the next generation, especially when nobody holds her accountable? And even if she gets arrested, she gets a fifteen thousand dollar bond. For shooting you in the face. How does that work? What does that produce over generations in a family? Well, for one thing, we know it produces an entitled perspective that some people can do whatever they want to you with no repercussions. Right. No repercussions. They go into it knowing that there really won't be any repercussions. That's part of what you'll see in that 18 minute video. Right. Where she's attacking her boyfriend with an, an ice pick. And it's interesting if you listen to the women who are recording it, you know, because you live in a small neighborhood. Everybody knows everybody. One of the things they said was, yeah, she gets it from her grandmother. 
I bullshit you not. Listen to that 18 minute video. At one point, one of the women who's recording it says to another woman, yeah, she's crazy. She gets it from her grandmother. And I just was like, oh, my God. We're talking about something that has been reinforced multi-generationally, but we're not allowed to talk about it unless it's solely something that men aggress toward women. Right. So I wanted to give you guys a little information, hopefully some useful information to bring to bear when you're trying to uh, prepare younger men for the realities of 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 what comes with becoming a man when it comes to debates. It might be a family debate. Um, I've had again, I've had uh, subscribers tell me they'll be home for family events and they'll get into these arguments. And much of the time, because popular narrative is as it is it becomes very difficult to actually argue with, with accuracy what's going on. So I'm, I'm trying to provide, you know, the information that may be of use so we can actually get at the heart of what's really happening in relationships, but especially in a quarantine where the violence is, you know, there's more uh, reason for that to kind of increase in the midst of the frustration and stress that people live with that, you know, hopefully you can use this information to open some eyes, right? Hopefully you can open some eyes. You can get people thinking you can ch you can change the discussion um, by actually showing what the data shows and just not what people's feelings or opinions must be. Because I can tell you, even after 20, 20 years of higher education, this was this was still not something that I was given in class. Let me tell you, the, the way they would deal with abuse in classes that I took from undergrad through doctorate is they would bring someone into class who had experienced abuse. She would tell, and it would always be a she, she would tell her story about how she was abused. And then the shaming language would kick in and the class would become this almost kind of church ceremony where people would express their feelings and experiences, whether it was their parents or their cousin or somebody they read about who was abused. And then they would all turn to the men and expect the men to begin to articulate how they will never stand for another man abusing a woman. And each man began to compete with one another to prove who could be the most, let me see. anyway, prove who could outdo each other in terms of showing who could be the most progressive. And progressive in that context meant that you could defer to women. You could prioritize women as the primary victims the primary uh, group that needed to be protected and the women themselves were void of critique. Appreciate the support, Dwayne Brown. Um, Dwayne, excuse me. Uh, so, you know, that's the, if that's how it's been taught in higher education, right? We already know what's happening in television or movies. The only time you really see male victimization in an intimate partner setting is as a joke. You know, that's it. You don't run across very many serious situations. Sometimes it's tolerated when it's boys. Right. Um, if you go watch Antoine Fisher, for example, Antoine Fisher is an excellent film that actually is one of the first that I'd ever seen that dealt, dealt with male sexual victimization by a family member, by a female family member at that. Right. But it was only palpable. I mean, it was only, you know, palatable, excuse me, 
It was only palatable because he was a boy. He was a boy. And because he was a little boy at that, people could begrudgingly accept that he was victimized and that the woman in the equation, the two women actually, it was a uh, there was a mother figure who adopted him and then he had this adopted sister, both of whom were obviously, you know, significantly older than he and the, 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 the sister figure, you know, raped him. The mother figure just abused him in general. She beat him. She down, you know, she talked poorly of him. You know, uh, that was one of the few films I ever saw that dealt with black male sexual vulnerability. But it was acceptable as long as you were dealing with boys. But not that acceptable because you didn't see a slew of films coming out dealing with it. Right. And if you actually start to talk about sexual vulnerability, sexual victimization, when you look, America is the only country that imprisons its citizens to the degree that it does. That being said, I have argued for years that it's actually black men, statistically speaking, that are more vulnerable than any other population in regard to sexual assault and rape. Because when you account for prison, the numbers go through the roof in terms of men being violated far more than women. And statistically speaking, the majority of those men are going to be black and male. But we don't have room. We don't have a cultural framework that allows for compassion for men who have experienced sexual victimization, be it at the hands of a man or a woman. And, I, you know, every time I raise that issue, the first thing I start to hear are either feminists that try to shift the discussion back to female victims or I hear men come in and shame the men who have been victimized for not being man enough. Those are the two primary ways the subject is dealt with and then it's done away with. And we go right back to status quo. Nothing else is dealt with. And there's so many different ways that men can be victimized. I'm not going to be on here long, so I'm going to give you one. And I think it's particularly important in the midst of a quarantine, right? Jobs are being lost. People are losing the, the, the means to support themselves and their family. So you got three kids, you're married, and you happen to work for a female manager that you find utterly disgusting. Not only in terms of her physical makeup, but even just her personality. You are not attracted to her in the slightest. You find her disgusting. You have had problems with her. You're trying to stay on the straight and narrow in terms of not getting fired arbitrarily. So you're doing your job to the best of your ability. You do. In the midst of a, of, of, a, of a pandemic, she lets you know that you either provide her with sexual service or it's your job. And I'm speaking from both personal experience and from a lot of, of, of firsthand information from men who dealt with it. Shout out to Icebreaker for the $100 support. Thank you. Appreciate that. JBA, um, appreciate that support. All right. Much appreciated for that, sir. I'm assuming that's a sir, but I appreciate that. So you're told provide sexual service or one way or another, you're going to lose your job. And it's not difficult for them to come up with reasons to fire you. I mean, black folk more than anybody understand that, right? All it takes is, uh, you know, depending on the setting you're in. So if it's, you know, some settings, you could just be outright let go. Other settings, especially if you're in corporate settings, things of that nature, what they what they often start to do is they start to, to, to provide you with low numbers of um, 
uh, uh, low quality control reports, low reviews, low annual reviews. You start getting you know, like periodic reviews that, and, and each of your reviews is negative, right? And if you're savvy, you know that you put a letter in with those reviews that actually frames the situation from your vantage point. But nevertheless, the point ends up, you get a series of reviews before you get let go. There's a lot of ways to, to fire people, legal or illegal. My wife used to lose her job all the time, even though she was she was sick. She was sick. She had sickle cells. She was always sick. And, and technically it was illegal to fire somebody for health purposes, but they didn't. They would just create reviews that portrayed her to be a poor employee until they could justify getting rid of her. Right. So that kind of thing can happen pretty easily. Right. So the, the threat of losing your uh, job versus providing someone sexual service can be very real. And when it comes to men, it's a threat that nobody really takes seriously. So now you either have to engage this, you either have to try to go to HR and hope you're believed, try to make enough noise about it to be heard or start looking for another job. Much of the time men either do it or they just start looking for another job. Like I said, we just walk it off. We don't, you know, there's, it, because we don't expect compassion and we often don't get it anyway. And when we try to invoke these situations into the discussion, they're usually dismissed because nobody wants to hear that. People don't want to frame that as some type of victimization. But at the end of the day, she has power in the dynamic. The difference is we have only learned to interpret power in a sexual harassment framework as physical power. We haven't learned to interpret it in, along any other lines. So if she has political power, if she has you know the power of being in that space as a supervisor or whatever, that's still power. Right. And that can affect your record for years. And yet nobody cares. So you, you, those are the kinds of situations that black men have to grapple with, often with no fanfare. Right. Right. So Shada, it's already hard enough to get a job as a black male, let alone keep it. And now you're in a situation where you have to. Anyway, so I just wanted to drop that. I hope that uh, somebody may find it useful. I appreciate all the support. Um, that for, for those of you that were able to, uh, I hope you guys are being careful in the midst of all of this. Um, you know, I don't care if you think this is a hoax or not. Talk to some of the people in New York and uh, New Jersey and look at how many people they're watching being pulled out of their apartments and homes and body bags. This is no joke, people. So I truly hope you guys are being careful. Keep your head on a swivel. Uh, you guys know how I like to close. I'm here to tell you all we are not criminals by birth perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We're thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs. You define your worth, people. All right. Peace.